welcome to talc teaching and learning consultation skills this is the talc talks podcast helping everyone who sees patients to improve their consultation skills to get better outcomes and this approach can even increase your job satisfaction This podcast is part of a series where we're talking about why and how consultation skills promote better and safer care, focusing on each module in turn. Effective consultation skills have been repeatedly shown to contribute to safer, more accurate and more patient-centred interactions. Clinicians who consult skillfully make fewer errors and they also deliver care of better quality which in turn means they conform to the expectations of regulatory bodies such as the GMC or the NMC. So in each of these, how do these consultation skills promote better and safer care chapters, there are two examples. One is of a patient with a bad sore throat, and the second is a patient who says, I would like some sleeping pills. These very common scenarios need accurate clinical assessment and an effective therapeutic relationship must also be created for the right care to be offered in line with each patient's specific needs. However, such consultations can run into problems if the right consultation skills are not used. This could include conflicts, for example, if the clinician and the patient disagree about the treatment or the investigations. Safety incidents can arise if important clinical information is missed because of poor information gathering skills. Sometimes good treatment plans go wrong or fail completely if the patient's own point of view and their own needs are not properly understood because this means patients don't carry out plans. In some worst case scenarios, clinicians can be subject to complaints if things go wrong or if the patient is unhappy with how the consultation went. Many of these adverse things can be completely prevented if the right skills are used in the right way at the right time. Every part of the consultation offers opportunities for curiosity and inquiry using effective listening skills to improve the information available to the clinician and that helps to ensure that care is fully personalised to the needs of the individual patient. By exploring these two clinical situations in detail, each chapter will demonstrate the benefits of the relevant skills very clearly. So why have we chosen really bad sore throat and sleeping pills as clinical scenarios. Let's think about a really bad sore throat first. There's really no such thing as a sore throat. There's always a patient present who has the sore throat and for them the sore throat is only one aspect of their whole problem. Clinicians need to be able to maintain an open mind about what any particular patient's sore throat is really all about and avoid jumping to conclusions early on. Many clinicians start by thinking a sore throat is a straightforward situation and they focus on asking themselves questions like, is this viral or bacterial? Shall I give antibiotics or shall we not give antibiotics? This internal focus can mean important aspects of the patient's story are missed. However, thinking about the sore throat beforehand and thinking about the skills that are needed can help the clinician make a safer and more accurate assessment and plan. Thinking about the scenario when somebody says, can I have some sleeping tablets, is also quite similar. 
patients who are disturbed, stressed or distressed, may sometimes introduce their quite complicated problem with a seemingly simple request such as, can I have some sleeping tablets? Just as there is no such thing as a sore throat, there's no single answer to the question of whether a patient will benefit from sleeping tablets. Successful and safe consulting in this situation means that a clinician must be able to use the generalist skill of placing the patient's problem within their own specific context. However, as most sleeping tablets have a potential for addiction, and they might not even improve sleep very much, many clinicians have a core attitude that sleeping tablets are not helpful. Thus, they may mentally answer the patient's closed question of, can I have some sleeping tablets, with a kind of mental immediate, no, you can't. Coming to the consultation with a fixed view like this can make clinicians less curious about the full story that they need to hear from the patient and can affect the accuracy of the treatment plan. In this discussion, we're going to focus mainly on TALP module five, and this is advanced skills for explanation and planning, and in particular for planning care that's personalized to the individual. Anne, I think you've got a story about somebody with a sore throat, which shows how some of these skills can be used in practice. Yes. So this is taken from a recording from a consultation that I looked at with a trainee. This is Stella's story. Stella's 32. She contacted the practice for a call by the messaging service saying, I've got a really bad sore throat for a few days with a runny nose. I've done COVID tests and the negative and I'm fully vaccinated too. I just need a course of antibiotics and amoxicillin to clear it up so I'm not ill when I go on holiday to Scotland at the weekend. So the clinician read the notes and saw that Stella has had three episodes of tonsillitis in the past seven years. On the first occasion, there was white debris and exudate on the tonsils with a fever and swollen glands. In the other consultations, the throat appeared normal and there was no fever. She'd also had shingles on the chest 10 years ago. She got malaria eight years ago after a trip to Gambia and she'd consulted about other things, acne, impetigo and some minor musculoskeletal problems. During the call, Stella complains of a sore throat without fever and she's got a slight runny nose with some coughing, particularly when she lies down at night. She's not particularly unwell and she's been able to continue to work at home in her role as an assistant personnel manager. Her voice is normal, she says, I just want some amoxil so I can get this cleared up. I'm going to Scotland to visit my parent-in-law, so I don't want to be ill when I'm away and I don't want to give them anything. The clinician established that Stella is worried about it all being this nasty tonsillitis again and she believes this will be cured by antibiotics. So although this seems unlikely clinically, Stella is invited to be seen for a physical examination, which is essentially normal, apart from a slight runniness of the nose. So then the clinician starts their explanation by saying, well, this seems to be a viral sore throat and it should get better with no special treatment. Don't think you need antibiotics at all. So at this point, Stella seems quite put out and she says that she always has required antibiotics in the past. She accuses the clinician of simply trying to save money and she's not interested in hearing any explanations about antibiotic resistance or anything like that. She refuses the offer of the prescription for some paracetamol or some codeine for her symptoms and actually she flounces out of the consultation room looking pretty angry. Oh right so that consultation didn't really end well and I can see why that clinician brought it to you for discussion. So were there any other consequences to this apart from her getting rather cross and sort of storming out? Yes the following day a letter 
arrives at the practice for the attention of the clinicians and the letter is from the A&E department and it says Stella R attended here because she could not get a GP appointment today. She had a probable viral sore throat with negative COVID tests and she was prescribed penicillin for 10 days as she stated she had severe tonsillitis on many occasions in the past. Perhaps referral for tonsillectomy should be considered. So it was a bit of a puzzling letter. Our clinician was very puzzled by the somewhat illogical letter and also felt rather fed up because actually this wasn't particularly truthful about what had actually happened, particularly about that she couldn't get a GP appointment. And also the clinician felt a little like she'd exaggerated her symptoms to get what essentially she'd asked for and she'd wanted in the first consultation. Yeah, that's a tricky one, isn't it? And it it raises quite a lot of systems issues about communication between A&E and GPs, but we'll leave all that on one side. And let's focus on what could have gone differently in that first consultation and how could the clinician use some different skills to get a better outcome? Talc Module 5, Advanced Skills for Effective Explanations and Planning of Personalised Care, has a lot of information around this. So the first thing to do may be to go away and read this chapter, but also to listen to the podcasts and look at the videos which are accompanying that. Then maybe discuss this case with your clinical supervisor or or a mentor. Have they had similar problems? Has this happened to them? Have they had similar situations that they've encountered themselves? How have they prevented problems like this? I suppose it's then thinking about how does it feel when a patient tells their A&E doctor that they couldn't get a GP appointment when you've taken the time to see them and perhaps you've done your best? And actually, are there other situations where it might feel appropriate to say no to a patient's request? So, I mean, that might be saying no in response to perhaps inappropriate expectations. It can be difficult, but there are specific consultation skills which can help to smooth the way in these sort of circumstances and avoid the sort of inappropriate outcomes, as was the case in stellar situation. Uh, I think that's really interesting because there's quite a lot of things where perhaps doctors or nurses or clinicians feel they have to say, like, maybe not to patients, but maybe they're hoping for scans or x-rays or unsuitable treatments or even things which aren't available, like plastic surgery or something which the NHS doesn't fund, generally speaking. So I I think these sort of skills could have quite a wide applicability, couldn't they? So can you tell me a bit more about what kind of skills will help? Yeah, these skills are described in TALC 5.5, Never Say Never, which is about how to say no whilst saying yes. A really important thing is to avoid prematurely closing down the discussion by saying no immediately. Finding common ground, things that can be agreed upon, and any area of shared concern and sharing details of your clinical thinking are much more productive than simply saying no, even if at the beginning of a consultation your brain is telling you that maybe this is an unrealistic expectation or just something that you know that's going to be difficult to meet. It's also helpful then to ask about what is needed rather than what is not needed. In Stella's situation, the clinician could have prepared for this discussion by ensuring that Stella's concerns were fully taken on board and were shared by the clinician. Okay, so what kind of phrases do you think would help to get Stella on board then in this situation? So she's quite worried about the trip that she was taking and she expressed that concern. It was elicited in the consultation. Maybe a phrase like, with your trip coming up, I can quite understand why you'd be worried about tonsillitis. It sounds like you've had a nasty amount of it in the past. And that invites Stella to tell you about her concerns and also it tells you perhaps for her to reflect on what had happened in the past. 
Yeah, and it, it would definitely show her that you were concerned about the big picture, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And maybe. Yeah, I was just thinking, I mean, dressing this thought about antibiotics, maybe something like, of course, at times antibiotics are very useful if there is tonsillitis there. Sounds like it would be helpful for me to do a full examination to see if that applies to you right now. Is that OK with you? Why does that help, do you think, saying is that OK with you? I think in this situation, a patient is very likely to say yes to that statement and also the question as we addressed it before. And it, it shows that the clinician has taken in their concerns fully and is thinking carefully about the problem and thinking about what needs to be done next. And a patient is able to agree with the clinician about the need for an examination. And it makes it more likely that they're able to find common ground as the conversation progresses. So it's kind of like if the patient starts saying yes by agreeing with things that they can both agree on, like she's had tonsillitis in the past, she'd like to have an examination, that kind of makes it more likely she's going to agree with the clinician later on with whatever they suggest. Absolutely. And again, sharing those examination findings, but perhaps using a phrase like, you know, may I talk through your examination findings in detail, again, invites, it's very rare that people are going to say no to that state, to that question. So again, as you've just outlined, that it is more likely that you're moving forward together and there's a sense of agreement. And um, as we said, finding common ground here is the most important thing. I think one of the interesting things here, which refers back to actually module four and using positive language, how the words you use can actually be healing. Because I noticed initially the clinician says something like, this is a viral sore throat, we'll get better with no special treatment. I don't think you need antibiotics at all. There's lots of no's and negatives in that. Whereas mm. it, it might be presented in a different way. So how could the clinician present the examination findings in a more effective way, do you think? Yeah, so sometimes it can be helpful in this situation to ask permission to talk through what the clinician would be looking for, perhaps saying, can I talk through the examination findings that would make me want to prescribe antibiotics immediately? The main things we look for are fever, exudate, discharge on the tonsils, glands in your neck and absence of cough. And the clinician can then ask for Stella's response to that. You know, what does this mean to you or what do you think to that? Um, or explain the findings you've got from the clinical examination in stages. Mm, so kind of she might say, well, I haven't actually got a cough or a fever, or you might go through things one by one. So let's think, did you have a fever? Well, no, you didn't or something like that. Yeah. So you, if you'd said we would both be worried by a fever, but thankfully your temperature is normal. So that's really good. And you can build on that. So using the chunking and checking techniques we discussed in TALP module 4.3, each time that invites a response, like you said, so, you know, your, your temperature is normal. What are we thinking now? You know, there's no exudate on the tonsils. How, how, how are we feeling about that? That makes sense because it's really sharing the clinician's thinking in a very positive way. It's using positive language, like, you know, your temperature's quite normal. It's nice to know you're normal, isn't it? And then I suppose that's going to lead more easily into a conversation about what treatment is needed rather than what treatment is not needed, which is where the conflicts come. Because I think, for example, it'd be very weird to start a conversation about treatment by saying, well, you don't need azathioprine, you don't need steroids, you don't need chemotherapy. So why do we start these conversations with, well, you don't need antibiotics? All, all those things are true, but it's not the way you go forwards, it would be much better to say, you know, I think we could improve your symptoms with this approach in a positive way. And at that point, she may even agree, particularly if she's agreed about all these findings. 
I suppose I'm wondering though what happens if she's still got anxieties and still says well all that's all very well but I've always had antibiotics before so I want some amoxicillin now how would you proceed then Anne? Often people's anxieties are quite you know are deep-seated and they're based on a lot of what's happened in the past or personal experience and also in in her situation there's other things going on so I mean I absolutely would explore these further if she's worried about passing an infection on then it's an opportunity to clarify how long she's likely to be infectious and to talk about how antibiotics wouldn't influence that. So it's more about exploring exactly what her concerns are and having the opportunity for her to respond and for the clinician to continue to address that. So what if she's still insistent after all that? Any other options? I mean, I think that often what's happened in the past is a powerful influence on and what people expect. And I think in this situation, then another option might have been offering a, a deferred or a post-dated prescription and then being really clear in an explanation, saying if things are really not settling down or when she goes away and, and giving some clear direction about that, that that's a possibility. And actually, a lot of deferred prescriptions are taken away and are not cashed in, so to speak. Patients are looking for the security of having that available to them. But it is another way of saying no while still saying yes. Yeah, I think it's quite comforting to people to know they've got an option, isn't it, really? And they can wait a few days. Natural healing is very likely to take over. Our colleague, Mohan Kumar, talks about this approach that you've described here as being a long yes rather than a quick no, like sort of many shades of grey yes rather than a black and white no. And I think that's a much better way to work with areas of common concern and agreement and to keep the patient on board, as it were, rather than just holding your hand up and saying, no, that's that's never going to happen. That's That just creates conflict, really. So how can a, a clinician develop these skills? How could they get better at doing this? One way is to identify a number of situations where the clinician may have different ideas about the way forward, create, create some basic scenarios. So using personal experience or the experience of your, your colleagues or mentors, then think of these common situations where you know, perhaps having to address a, an expectation or a hope from a patient that's not going to sit with yourselves. So you can practice the skills outlined in, in TALP 5.5 using a skills rehearsal. And this can you know, be done one-to-one with your mentor. You do this in groups if you're doing group learning. There's a checklist there that you can use to provide feedback. So you're looking for the specific skills. So see how many times you can get a person or a patient to agree with you before any areas of disagreement are brought up. And you can see the sort of progress of the effects of that, people saying yes, and and how that has an effect further on in your consultation. I think that's a good idea. And I think it's very magical if you watch an expert do this. It all seems to happen very easily and smoothly without any conflicts. I guess these skills are useful in other areas of life as well. And and maybe people could practice using the same approach, like, I don't know, to explain to a friend that you don't want to lend them any money or that you prefer to go on holiday with somebody else or, you know, you want to go to the movies with them. You don't really want to watch a horrible, scary thriller because you'd rather go and see a nice comedy or something. I mean, these are ways of doing a long yes in real life that can give you some practice in these skills. Yeah. Thank you, Anne. That's great. Thanks, Avril. So, Avril... Could you share a case where there's been a request for sleeping tablets? Yeah, and this one I think illustrates quite a lot of the skills of uh, Module 5, actually. This is a consultation with somebody called Carol. She's 57, and she came to the attention of the clinician who was assisting the duty doctor because the pharmacist left a message saying, 
I've issued her repeat prescription as usual, but Carol asked me for some sleeping tablets. She seemed a bit distressed. Can you ring her? So that's the background. And when the clinician prepared for the consultation carefully, they checked the notes, which showed that Carol had only moved to the practice about 18 months ago. She's had hypothyroidism for 10 years and is on thyroxine. And six years ago, she had a very significant depressive episode. Her husband was apparently drinking very heavily and she took an overdose of tamazepam and paracetamol. She did make a full recovery and she had six months treatment with citalopram for depression afterwards. And then about four years ago, she had a simple mastectomy for stage one breast cancer. And she's on a continuing treatment with letrozole and colecalciferol. So the clinician called her and asked her to tell me all about the problems you're having with sleeping. Now, this was good in a way because the initial focus of attention was on the problem rather than on her thoughts about the solution, which is some sleeping pills. And it helped the clinician to get some relevant information. And they used a lot of skills, actually, from the information gathering skills of module three and building up rapport with empathy from module two. It seems that Carol moved into the area about 18 months ago so that she and her husband could be nearer to her daughter. Now, her husband started to suffer with dementia about three years ago and is getting progressively much worse. He's very restless and disturbed. He often wakes her up at night because he wanders around the house leaving lights on and shouting and yelling. And so Carol's naturally got rather exhausted. Carol arranged for her daughter to come and stay over for a couple of nights so that Carol could get some sleep. And a friend of hers has got a caravan at the seaside about an hour away and offered it to Carol saying she could have a quiet weekend of complete rest, which sounds quite tempting. Now, Carol says she doesn't sleep well even when away from Frank because she's so used to being woken up. And she also doesn't always settle that well for the first few nights in a strange place. And she feels she's got to sleep somewhere else because if she's in the house, Frank will just wake her up anyway. She says a good sleep will put me right. And she says she feels nothing like she did when she was previously depressed and she just needs some sleep. And she says specifically, I want some strong sleeping tablets. Don't fob me off with something that won't work. So um, what was the clinician thinking at this point? Well, they were still worried about the possibility of an overdose and that made them quite reluctant to prescribe. But they didn't share that with Carol. They just said, really, they got into what I call a hard game of why don't you? Yes, but. So they said, why don't you try relaxation tapes? And Carol says, I tried that and it didn't work. So they say, well, why, why don't you try a mindfulness app on your phone? And Carol says, oh, that's useless. I'm no good with that sort of thing. And then they say, well, we've got this online CBT therapy for sleep. And Carol says, well, but I'm useless with computers. And they just go on like that for a bit. And in the end, the clinician who's still very reluctant to prescribe at that point, they offer to refer Carol and her husband to the local dementia services. And Carol then says, yeah, right, what will they do? I saw that dementia lot before I moved here. And they just said, put him in daycare, which he refuses to go to anyway. So don't bother me referring me again. So the clinician kind of says, well, let's review things after your weekend away to see how things are going then. And Carol just sighs at that point and puts the phone down. So it, it sounds like both Carol and the clinician are a bit unsatisfactory. It sounds like they both got stuck, really. Yeah, it seems like she wants one thing, but which the clinician doesn't feel they can give her. And I think the clinician does feel that they've experienced that moment of what do you do when you don't know what to do. 
So they're stuck and they're really not sure how to do better next time Carol rings up. Anyway, they came to discuss this and discovered that somebody else had seen Carol in the meantime and given her five low-dose Sopiclone tablets with a note saying she can use these at her discretion to help her sleep on her night off from Frank. And the clinician was really surprised at this and said, are you allowed to do that? Can you give somebody just five tablets? So, so that opened up quite a lot of different areas for discussion, really. So did you find out how the other clinician had come to sort of different conclusions and had found a different way forward? Yeah, well, we were able to get together and have a discussion about that. And they said they'd explored Carol's thinking in quite a bit more detail. And she had actually thought about self-harm as, as in the past. But she said, who would care for Frank then? Um, apparently he was horrible when he was drinking, but after he retired from work, he stopped drinking and then their relationship improved massively. And she said, we really reconnected. Then this horrible dementia started. So there was quite a bit of empathy and discussion about how Carol is sad because she's really losing the relationship with her husband in real time, actually. And this used a lot of the skills from module five, six, therapeutic conversations. And this meant recognising and accepting and validating Carol's own thoughts and feelings about her situation. But the other clinician also did a lot more emphasis on praising Carol's positive coping strategies. You know, she's looking after Frank, she's getting her daughter to help, she's actually moved to where family are more nearby, which is a very positive step. And she's taken some steps to try and get a rest for herself, which is a good thing to do, actually, in this situation. But then... Because it's uncertain about the benefits of sedatives, they actually shared their thinking out loud. They use phrases like, can I share my thinking about the sleeping tablets? You know, talking about the risks and the possible benefits. And they used a very useful phrase, which is, on the one hand, I can see why you want some sleeping tablets. On the other hand, there's a risk that you might take them all at once or that they might not work. They also did this thing, which I think you've talked about before, which is asking Carol for her thoughts and responses to what, what's been said, so that there's the, her ideas and concerns come up in this explanation phase as well. And when Carol was asked for her thoughts about how the risks of an impulsive overdose could be minimised, she said, well, firstly, I'm pretty much coping, and sooner or later, Frank will probably need to go into residential care, so I only want a few tablets, because then I'd never be able to take an overdose anyway. What do you think about that approach, Anne? Yeah, so I think that opportunity for Carol to reflect back her own thoughts is so important here, because actually there was a lot about what Carol was thinking that was undiscovered with the initial clinician. And I think that there's so much power in that sharing of your own thinking as a clinician. I think that that's when often when clinicians get stuck, that can be a really helpful skill to share that and say, you know, what I'm thinking here is this. And that's not to share that you're stuck, but to share your thinking and then allow a patient to reflect back their own thinking and that's more of a conversation rather than a sort of monologue of explanation or decision making on one person's part and it seems to me that after that discussion that Carol is much more willing to have a discussion and, and potentially is more willing to accept some of the sort of helpful things that the, the clinician had, had tried to come up with to sort of ease her distress and make sleep easier for her. It's, it's interesting, isn't it, that when the issue about the overdose is brought up, you know, how are we going to make sure that you don't take another overdose? Because that would be a bad outcome. It actually 
comes from Carol that she says, well, I only want a few tablets. I don't, I don't want a lot of tablets. So then I couldn't take an overdose anyway, sort of thing. So she's almost thinking about that and has almost come up with the solution herself. And so remaining open rather than saying, these are the only things I'm offering. Staying open has, has started to produce a solution from Carol that everyone can sign up to. Interestingly as well, after that second discussion, she was willing to accept a referral to the local dementia home care team. And it might well be that in a different locality, there are slightly different services available and she might find something that, that will be useful for her and Frank now. So how would you use these improved consultation skills to prevent problems like this arising? How would you develop these skills? Well, I think if you want to get better at doing this, you have to start at the beginning. It's it's worth reading the TALP module about this. What do you do when you don't know what to do? Skills for discussing uncertainty. There's podcasts and other things there. Discussing this with other people and, and saying, you know, what do they do when they're uncertain or what do they do when they're not sure? How flexible are other people about sort of non-standard prescriptions or slightly more creative solutions? So you get some ideas about the range of options, I suppose, can often help as well. Because I think the first clinician did try to understand Carol's predicament and, and even showed some empathy for the difficulties of looking after a man with dementia. But they didn't discuss their uncertainty. Yeah, I think if that often this is possibly something that you've not been encouraged to do throughout training as a clinician, which is to share uncertainty. There's a sense that there's an expectation of knowing the answers to things and that sharing uncertainty or revealing that isn't the right thing to do. But I think you've eloquently explained how that really can lead to some benefits. And certainly in the case of Carol, it, it really was the thing that sort of unlocked the door to, to progressing this conversation and actually ultimately helping her in, in her predicament. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting point because I think there's a difference between sort of shrugging and saying, I don't know what to do, or I don't know the answer, because that can also be quite a place where you can get stuck as well. But saying, actually, I've got quite a few thoughts about this and these are the thoughts I've got. And then to invite a response means that you're kind of sharing that problem together and you're going to think through it together. Where there is sort of equipoise or where it's not very clear which of several options could be considered or could be in play, it's often really helpful to do that. And it can prevent resorting to dysfunctional ways out of the uncomfortable situation too. I mean, they got into a very dysfunctional dialogue here along the lines of why don't you yes but why don't you yes but which never ends well in my experience actually so so i think that was a way of kind of getting away from that particular dead end examples of sort of dysfunctional way outs which people resort to when things have become stuck yeah i think people sometimes say a blunt no you can't do that and everybody gets a bit cross Sometimes they make a referral. They say, oh, well, you'd better see our nurse about sleep or you'd better see somebody else. Or they do something rather than think about it. So they say, oh, well, let's get some blood tests or let's do something. So they kind of defer the problem to a later date. There are a lot of different approaches, but a lot of them boil down to not wanting to share your thinking, really. And in a way, nobody wants to appear to be lacking in the skills to do their job. Nobody wants to kind of say, well, I don't know what to do, because it kind of implies you're a bit incompetent or something. And I think that's why a lot of people are uncomfortable with sharing uncertainty. If you do it in a skillful way by saying this is my thoughts on the one hand on this on the one hand that and, and sometimes people are saying things like well you know I'm getting the feeling you want me to fix this problem I know you've seen a lot of other clinicians about the problem they haven't been able to fix it so 
that kind of, if you just stop there, either the patient is going to say, yeah, but I thought you could give me this tablet or that tablet or whatever, or they can invite reflection on that, or that might lead on to saying, so I'll help you in what way I can, but I'm wondering what specifically you thought would be helpful today. And then again, it enables a dialogue rather than putting the whole weight of the solution on, on the clinician. I was just thinking then that that sort of goes back to those basic skills that we covered in TALC module two about building effective relationships, isn't it? That developing the skills of rapport building and being open and, and the list, actually the listening in all parts of the conversation that we talked about in the earlier TALC modules are there to sort of continue to build relationships. And I was interested about the point you were talking about when Carol was expressing herself of the recognition and acceptance and validating her feelings as, as part of um, her experience really and how by doing that that this second clinician had really been able to help Carol in a much more meaningful way. I think that feeling of acceptance is very important it makes people feel calmer and more relaxed and less stressed and that's going to put them in a better frame of mind to have some problem solving discussions as well actually and that can take things forwards in a much more positive way. I think it's difficult to think about how to develop these skills and one of the things I would say that in some ways the skills of TALC 5 are not skills that you can parachute in. They very much depend, as you were just saying then, on the skills of building relationships, gathering information effectively, summarising effectively, being able to do basic things effectively. And I think the important thing is to practice some of these phrases, phrases like on the one hand, on the other hand, phrases like can I share my thinking, practice using phrases like, you know, I think we need to discuss together, what are the options and so on, will often help to unstick this. That sounds great. And thank you for that discussion, Avril. Very interesting. Thanks, Anne. This podcast was brought to you by NHS Professional Educators, making training available to all.